Good morning, Vietnam. Always want to do the that. The big time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that I make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff that I never had. Now that you have the rules of engagement, choose your weapon, Barry. Where should we start? <laughs> yeah. And this, welcome to this episode of Hunger Games starring Barry Allen. He is the only survivor. <laughs> <laughs> he successfully I, run the gauntlet through our technology uh, needle. And, so. and I... I made the mistake of listening to some of your previous podcasts and I've been frantically trying to come up with something witty or somewhat intellectual to, to offer today. <laughs> we know that's going to be a failure. No, just kidding. So, <laughs> I, have I believe in Barry, Neil. Speak for yourself. Let, let, yeah, yeah. Let, let me tee it up. One of the reasons I wanted to have Barry on our podcast today was because, you know, he's uh, an entrepreneur um, who has just tried a lot of different things from investing in a bar once very unsuccessfully to um, uh, being a medical device entrepreneur typically. But he took a break in the middle of that to start what is uh, the Zillow of Canada. Uh, I always tell him how originally is. I'll never get tired of this joke. It's called Zolo. Um, and, you know, Barry just thought it would be interesting to get <laughs> rapid feedback sequences. And, you know, he saw a hole in the market and decided to go for it. Um, rather than, you know, medical device um, R&D or engineering just takes longer than testing some new feature on a site to some degree or figuring out whether they should add a new feature to begin with. Um, so, you know, I've known Barry through an incubator that we volunteer at called Creative Destruction Labs. And Barry has some of the very best advice for companies. Um, and what I've noticed is companies I would count out and dead occasionally, Barry will take on. And eight weeks later, they're ready to go, right? And they have some idea of where they're going. Um, more recently, Barry uh, took over a 3D modeling company. And I'm going to butcher this about PureWeb. But I think we've all used the 3D modeling software to shop for an, a car before. Yes. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and it actually wasn't started for modeling cars, but, you know, there they are in, in trying to figure out the pivot. Um, Barry, uh, where should we start in learning more about you and what makes you tick? Well, you know, the, the conversation about some of the things that I've done over the years ranged from ludicrous to, uh, <laughs> in hindsight, obviously, <laughs> a bad idea. <laughs> finding opportunities that were there and creating businesses out of them. And I think as I get older, not wiser, but older, I've decided that what's more important are the, is the, the macro trends um, going on in the background. Uh, not so much falling in love with your own technology, which is a, something we see all the time from entrepreneurs. And I think that leads to how I founded and started this big real estate company that's the biggest site in Canada and 700 employees or something like that now. Um, and to the company I'm running now, that was a pivot from a medical device, uh, a medical imaging company into uh, publishing digital realities for configurators or virtual whatever, was based on there was something happening in the background already. 
And it was really targeting what we did towards things that were happening in the background already. Now, COVID, um, for good or better or worse, turned out to be a catalyst for the current company by accelerating the need for our products and and making it more more attractive for people to use it. But I think about all the cool things I've done in the past. And uh, do you mean Zolo or Pure Web when you said that COVID's better for? Co- actually, COVID's better for both. Uh, yeah, I, COVID, fi- I figured actually. COVID in particular uh, has, you know, it creates an environment. And I was actually, I was talking to a, a fund out of the U.S. this morning about what we're doing, and I was like, well, you know, the bad news it kind of crushed our healthcare business. Everyone talks about, oh, COVID's going to be good for all the healthcare companies. Well, that's not true. It's good if you're in the PPE business. And if I hear another person talk about saliva-based PCR testing, I'm just going to kill myself. But um, <laughs> have I got a pitch for you, Barry? <laughs> Actually, Chris, I'm selling the rope. I'm selling the rope. And I really want us to get one, right? So there's a, there's a case where uh, there is a, a macro trend and a need, um, but it, the healthcare, you know, everyone assumed that healthcare was going to be booming through through this uh crisis, the pandemic, and failed to recognize that the bulk of healthcare is, you know, sponges and saline bags and fake knees. Uh, and and those that business is gone, like dramatically impacted negatively by the, the cancellation of elective surgeries. And then transferring all of our focus towards keeping our ICU beds ready, at least in Canada, for the for the the flood that never came. Unfortunately the US is now getting that flood of their ICU, but so probably good that they did it. But the macro things affect different people differently. And so it, it, it was negative on our healthcare business for the pure web company and positive for our streaming and virtual reality and, and virtual training and virtual trade shows because of the impact on people. And I think it's interesting that, um, you know, what was a good idea a year ago might not be a good idea today or a good idea or something that was a mediocre idea a year ago, hopefully. Uh, is now a good idea. And, you know, it, that, that's just been an interesting exercise for me, thinking about that and how do we react. But but really looking at if you're fighting the tide, it's really hard. It doesn't matter how good your tech is or your widget or whatever it is, if you're really um, out, of, out of touch or, or outpaced by things happening in the world. And I went through one of those before where I took over a company that was in um, radiology, x-ray, on in, and I was trying to fix something that started out as a film-based radiology company. Now, that's no longer something we do. And we had to pivot out of film into digital. And had we not, you know, we wouldn't have survived. And so I always think about the, mac, the macro things that are happening. And now I'm actually trying to get on things where the macro trend is ahead of me. And then I have to catch up, which I've decided is much better than having a great idea and waiting for the trend to catch up to me. Mm-hmm. With that imaging company, Barry, were you able to turn the ship, or would it have been better just to start fresh as a digital company? Uh, well, other than I would say that this year our revenue on the healthcare side of has negatively impacted us and gone away. It had a, a large installed base of four thousand hospitals, half a million users around the world that were paying for support and maintenance. So that that stream of revenue from that installed base was really critical providing non-dilutive working capital or for, like true working capital. And it was all the same IP. So it was literally taking that product 
that was a great product, but did not look like it had the opportunity to get the kind of explosive growth we wanted, take the approach that's now platform, take all the features and benefits from that product and reconfigure them. So I think pivoting was the right thing to do. Uh, absolutely convinced that keeping, you know, five plus million US in, re, you know, recurring revenue at virtually no cost of goods uh, was good. That's five million bucks coming in your jeans every day when you start. So that, that's a good start to fund a, a turnaround. And we were able to turn around. So when I when I joined the company, it had it was 14 years old. It had never turned a profit. And my first quarter, we turned a profit. My first year, we had a profitable EBITDA year. So I think we're heading in the right direction and, and happy with that. And I think the new things we're doing, we're learning every day. And even within our new strategy that was around this streaming of uh, 3D graphic intensive photorealistic images, whether they were interactive or otherwise for e-commerce, et cetera, we, we got drawn into a whole new world that we hadn't even thought of um, six months ago, which was virtual trade shows. You know, what happens when, uh, for the automotive industry, when they cancel the Geneva Auto Show? Your whole business, your entire marketing strategy, your launch campaigns, everything booked 18 months in advance was tied to a specific date launch and it's gone. What do you do? And so we were lucky to be able to provide a solution for some of the leading automotive manufacturers to create virtual trade shows. And it continues on with in the software industry, other OEMs, industrial companies. But my pitch was like, listen, you know, why are you limiting your sales and marketing to a virtual trade show? How are your salespeople meeting with customers? So now you're talking about virtual sales tools. And I think these are all things that are being brought about as a catalyst. It, it literally didn't even wasn't even on our map six months ago. And now it's probably our second biggest line of business. And um, and then the question is, what happens post COVID? Right. I mean, for sure, we're 12, 18 months away from a vaccine. So things aren't going to get back to normal for a while. But what's the new normal? You know, once, you know, I think I listened to one of your other pods talked about the change of education and how we teach and how we learn and how our willingness to travel and be in large groups, that's going to remain. And, you know, we have a saying, everyone's got to eat, right? <laughs> everyone right. drive their business. How do you do that? And how do you take advantage of changes in particular in technology to do that? And I think that's a really exciting time to be around. Other than a bunch of people dying, which I feel bad about, it is really an interesting time uh, when you think about how much of a catalyst uh, COVID-19 has been. I mean, I, I can't think of, you know, I mean, certainly, you know, disaster. The dot-com bubble, maybe, might have been a yeah, no. catalyst for you. No? I'm, thinking, no. I'm thinking 9-11, right? Like, yeah. like think about I, literally like, these catastrophic events changing our world. Yeah, I was going to say a combination of those two maybe uh, getting us close, but I didn't think we'd have to reimagine just so much of our society and our human interaction in everything. this way. Yeah, everything. <laughs> and so, Barry, with your... Uh, 3D imaging, you're dealing another death blow to some form of commercial real estate. Maybe conventions will be <laughs> convention centers and other large gathering places will naturally be uh, smaller. That is yeah. interesting, Barry. We were wondering what it would be like to go to a conference from now on. Maybe you're part of the solution. Well, with your, and, your and it's, it's really quite exciting. Like you can see what we're doing. We're working on some large uh, social entertainment applications, which 
frankly, I'm still having a hard time getting my head around why you wouldn't just watch uh, YouTube. But, you know, this idea that people still want to, they still want to participate. They want uh, some personalization in terms of their experience. They don't want to just be broadcast. They want to be in control, just like you are. You decide where you go in the trade show. Uh, you decide what you want to listen to. Um, and you still want that interactive. So we're working with some large uh, U.S. manufacturers and and they're creating these virtual trade shows. And each of their booths have audio and video capabilities. So during regular business hours. And this is how super session should happen for CDL if it doesn't happen, Barry. You need yeah, to make this yeah. happen. Yes. Because, you know, and you want to, you've got mixed media, but you still, we still need that personal interaction. How do we get that personal interaction when we're not uh, touching, but we're still can be face to face. And I think it's really compelling um, just from the economics. So I can, I know one of the use cases we, we published, uh, ran a big uh, digital campaign. That manufacturer historically had spent four to five million US dollars participating in a physical trade show. That physical trade show had 600,000 participants, of which, safe to bet, 250,000 people went through that trade show and hit that uh, manufacturer's booth uh, for about, I think, $200,000 US. They were able to create and distribute a digital experience to over 200,000 people. So taking the cost per interaction from 4 million to 200,000. And they had had critical knowledge about every participant. So you had the ability to track people's behavior and uh, get better uh, analytics out of their digital experience than you can out of a, a, a trade show, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, a bunch of people walk by the booth. Okay, do you get their names? No. Do you know what they like? No, they stopped at the booth. In, in this kind of a digital world, you can tell exactly what they did. And if they spend three minutes looking at the blue one and a minute looking at the red one, they like the blue one. There you go. <laughs> so think about why would you go back to a large trade show, not to mention the cost of participation, the risk to your employees, but now you've got a bit. You've well, got- someday, hold on. Like, I, I know you're, you know, I know you drink your own Kool-Aid. Let me just say that. But uh, <laughs> come on, you don't think it's good to go to a, <laughs> don't you think it's good to go to like, uh, you know, for the media to go to the Geneva Auto Convention again, you know, three years from now when it's safe? Yeah, so uh, I, it's not Geneva we're talking about. We're talking about Beijing with someone, and they're talking about different experiences and trying to create a digital experience that is appropriate for the different types of audience, and their investment reflects their interest. So they're literally going to send a, um, I don't know if it's an Oculus or a HoloLens 2 goggle to 300 media. They're going to send them to the media. Mm-hmm. Oh, so it'll feel like you can still walk around. Okay. Yeah. And then they're going to want 300,000 people going through for pennies, right? They're not going to send goggles to everybody. So it's the combination of the two. And so I do think there, there will be a role for it. And the reason why I think it's going to change, though, is I think consumer behavior changes and then it's hard to, to turn back. You know, the, I just sorry to keep picking and, and just trying to disagree. I thought the Tesla Roadster was really cool until I saw it. And then I thought, this is a cheap piece of plastic, hmm. right? And and that's the thing I wonder about, right? With with different cars, until you get to go see them, how do you really know? Yeah, so that I, I, so I, I'll jump on that one with you because it 
it comes back to my um, to our you know everything I learned about digital, which you know frankly isn't very much, but. I mean, you're pretty successful for not yeah. knowing very much. <laughs> the breakdown is when you go from digital to analog mm-hmm. in, in every way. Like you can come up with a machine that will do 100% of the job 80% of the time. And I'd take that over a bunch of humans any day. And the other thing is if the digital experience doesn't match the analog, the physical world, that's where you have a disconnect. It mm-hmm. wasn't that you, the problem isn't, isn't that you thought it was cool and it turned out to be, it wasn't that it was a piece of junk. It's that you thought right. it was cool and it turned out to be a piece of junk. So what you need is improved sensitivity and, and, and reality. You actually need something that's photorealistic that has some tactile feel. And that for sure is hard to do over the screen. Um, and you actually have to carry people f- from an e-commerce perspective. You have to carry people far enough along the digital journey, the consumer journey. That they can then go check it out. This makes sense. That they're engaged, right? So all you're trying to do is engage. You're just changing the shape of the funnel. Yeah, no, the, what you're saying makes sense because then you can narrow it down to the two cars you like or three cars you like and go uh, try them, right? Well, and, and uh, Target. Uh, I was just going to say, you know, what we're also seeing just in the retail space is um, something we've talked about, you know, companies that started online like Warby Parker opening stores and they don't need 10,000 square feet, but just a proof of concept, a sort of small store for people who do want to touch and feel it when, you know, the bulk of their sales still happen digitally or online. Absolutely. And I'm a big, I've worn their glasses and I think Ollie Quinn, there's a couple of guys like that and they're tiny Mm -hmm. little shops with mm-hmm. six different yeah. names and you go in and you're thrilled to bits. If you went into a traditional retail store and they only had six different styles, would you say? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. That's an interesting point, Barry. It, it uh, the, the digital experience does change our expectations. You know, you're not walking into a cavernous retailer, again, 10,000 square feet or something in old Nordstrom to just find the, the eyewear section and <laughs> you expect <laughs> if you did find it, it would be just stocked to the gills with different styles. Yeah. And then it takes two weeks anyways. And, <laughs> and there's certainly going to be lots of that real estate around, you know, to Neil's point about not wanting to own a convention center or a <laughs> traditional department store. But so maybe COVID was the catalyst of something that was going to happen already. <laughs> I haven't been on Warby Parker, just not to pick on that. I haven't been on their site for a while, but I remember the early technology for this auto try on, was was pretty they were it was horrible and i haven't seen it lately i'm assuming it's much better and you look yeah. at how did they overcome that well we'll send you four pairs of glasses for free you can try them on at home and so there's probably a new digital solution that you know we're going to take a 3d scan of your head really easily by just turning your head three ways on your 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 phone and we're going to know whether those glasses are going to fit you and you're going to know exactly how they look because they're going to be photorealistic and then you won't go into the store Mm-hmm. Other than measuring your focal distance. Yeah, I guess that's a pretty good way of doing it, right? Like, <laughs> that's hard to argue. Yeah. And so the other thing, the one that I always thought was funny, and I and I loved as a, a, from an e-commerce perspective, was the the Zappos story and how we convince people. Like, because I don't have two pairs of shoes that fit the same, so I don't know what I would do. And the idea that they could, you know, create a business around something that's difficult to try on. Um, but look at the logistical challenge that came with that, right? They became a customer service driven organization and the restocking and the 
at, you know, all the impulse. Yeah, I, I, I mean, one year I traveled 215 days and I was like, I don't know when to buy shoes. I'm working too much. Yeah. Shit, I'll use Zappos. And <laughs> I ordered like eight pairs, bought one and sent, sent the rest of them back. And where did all those seven shoes go? The ones you don't want. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they weren't damaged anyway. I literally like just touched them, right? Like they put them cost, up for one. Well, they cost money to restock now, and I don't, and I don't know anybody who'd be willing to put those COVID shoes back into inventory right oh, now. Oh yeah, yeah. So that's changed again. So I think we just keep evolving, and and hopefully technology enables this, and 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 keeps up with it. I think, you know, I think the the virtual, you know, the auto configurators for cars are going to get better. I, we're not going to ship everybody like a 3D tactile suit so they can feel what the upholstery looks like on the Tesla. Mm-hmm. But you know what? I bet you, well, because we work with some of the leading supercar brands, I bet they'd send you a swatch of leather so you could see what the leather felt like. And then then they send you an invitation with a bottle of wine to come into their dealership by appointment only, which is what they need. Uh, because, you know, like how do you, how do you, how do you manage people towards the buying decision uh, economically? And I think we're going to have to figure out ways to do that. Uh, training's the same thing. Uh, we we have training customers who have have a need for certification, right? It's you know, in you know, mission critical training in some industry that they have to keep certified. Except they can't get to the training center. They can't fly cross border. They can't go in. And so you have to deploy. So you're creating training three virtual simulators of the environment and training them on that mission critical procedure uh, at home, integrated into a learning management system that tracks and records everything digitally. And by the way, uh, what? And I'm really excited about the changes coming in education because we know from the literature that the the gamification of training and the the repetitive nature of of these simulators is much better it, than a classroom setting and in classroom setting we talk about knowledge decay and we've all sat in that conference meeting all day long and laughing i don't remember 70 percent of it the next day i remember 15 and that's if i wasn't you know out drinking the night before with <laughs> <laughs> so you know that's going to change and think about that i think about the impact of that um you know i think the industrial training industry in the U.S. is about $400 billion a year. And mm-hmm. that includes everything from Walmart to flying planes. Uh, and half of it is air is travel and accommodations. It's not even productive, right? right? And the other half is, the other of the other half, probably half of it is loss of productivity. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, your oil rig is not operating if you don't have people to pump. And so how do we change that? But that's going to change. That has to change because they also have to, de- we also have to deal with how do you train someone not to blow something up? You blow, if you're wrong, it, it explodes, right? So having technology that allows us to simulate these disasters will help us train to mitigate disasters. And I think that's, that's a good thing. Who wouldn't want that? better for people, yeah. the employees they learn more i think mean, that's better i think about our kids i just worry about the mental health issues related to COVID. And it's my biggest concern isolation lack of socialization mm-hmm. learning skills that kids get at school i'm worried about it i worry about it our employees 
coders are happy as they couldn't be happier sitting at home with their headphones on coding uh, unless they've got a home situation they want to get out of. <laughs> but then they want to, then who do they have a beer with or play Dungeons and Dragons with? There's no yeah. one to play Dungeons and Dragons with if you're not going to play. Do people still play? Uh, we actually we actually had guys in our office who were playing. I don't think it was Dungeons and Dragons, but it's something like that. <laughs> they would do it after work. They would do it at lunch. I think if you ask them what the worst thing about COVID would be that. Um, I asked a mutual friend of ours, Neil, I won't say his name, you know, we were talking about the impact of COVID and I said, oh man, you know, other than all the people that are going to die, I hate the fact that I can't get overnight deliveries in Amazon anymore. Like we were joking about like, what's going to change? And what are we going to be left with? Hopefully we're going to be left with uh, better productivity, better learning, uh, better economics for some of the things we do. And I hope we're just not a bunch of um, babbling, isolated idiots at the end that, <laughs> that wear a shirt and tie and track pants to work. Yeah. You, you know, I, I, yeah. you've, uh, you've seen me. I didn't know I was on video. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was just audio, but uh, audio only. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. wearing pants again. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you, no, no, it's interesting. Like you, you say that, right? Like how we feel when we're in, when we're done. And I was telling uh, Chris last week, I was a little too excited to go grab, you know, some milk from the grocery store for my wife. She said, she, you know, we're out. And I was like, I'll, I'll go get it right now. Didn't mm-hmm. give her a chance to say anything. You know? mm-hmm. And I felt like a, you know, five-year-old being taken to the candy store for the second time in life, right? Wow. And, and isn't it? And I was gone like less than ten minutes, and I was that excited. It's the highlight of your day. It was a little too weird how excited I was to get out to go buy milk. Well, so I, I'm in uh, beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia, where we actually have a fairly good handle on COVID. Um, we have had a recent uh, uptick, and uh, but it's you know someone with a background in statistics. I hate statistics. You know, this whole idea that we're talking about these huge... Your, your whole co- some of your whole companies are on statistics. What do you mean? I know, but it drives me nuts. The, you know, this... The, <laughs> you know, running clinical trials, you know, where the primary clinical endpoint is, plus or minus. Uh, but think about, you know, it's like we're talking about large percentage swings on a relatively small number, and it's alarming people. If, if the goal is to, to, to change people's behavior, then talking that way... Uh, will help us accomplish that because it will scare the crap out of people. But if we're actually trying to be thoughtful about how we how we go forward with COVID, I think we need to talk about statistics in a different way, right? Talk about change in, in the slope of the curve. And you know, we did we we talked about flattening the curve up here. I know you guys did too. And then after a few weeks in uh, quarantine, people talked about fattening the curve, which seemed to be the net outcome of no new cases, but everyone was fat. Um, and so <laughs> I, I um, yeah, I just, I, I, wor- I worry about it. Yeah. And I worry about our kids and I worry about the, I will worry about our, our, the people who should be protected anyways, right? The elderly, the, the, the weak and well, the, you know, the old, the weak and the dumb, they should be protected. Um, and I think about some of the things that happened up here that we caused because we were we were being greedy and we decided not to give them the attention and the care 
and the protection they needed. And, you know, we paid for it in old folks' homes. And yeah, yeah, thinking about that. Yeah, we certainly were slow to move. I think if children had been affected um, as the elderly were early on, that would have sent a much stronger message through and changed yeah. behaviors more rapidly than, than we actually uh, did. So, yeah, I mean, given that most of the elderly have been put away somewhere on purpose, uh, it's not a surprise that we were slow to react. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that I've done that with my parents. I have not. But, um, you know, that's an interesting thing. You know, what, what would have changed if it had hit our kids first? Yeah. 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 It, we had we had a situation, in particular, I think, caused by the constraints on public, you know, accommodation for the elderly, but also just the greed of the private providers. We had we created uh, a bad situation here and accelerated the the impact by having um, the housing providers were using. Um, casual labor to provide the health care to our families and they were doing it in a way to, to reduce costs and so what we had at least it was very common in canada the outbreaks in the old folks homes and the was the first outbreak in canada was in an elderly home near me and it was caused by uh, casual uh public health workers i guess they're called like the people who bathe look after our parents and our elderly and our infirm we're going from old folks home to old folks home, taking the bugs with them. And all that needed to be done was just have a, a dedicated staff in that hospital that were getting 40 hours a week out of one employer instead of 10 hours a week out of four. And we probably would have had a huge impact on the initial outbreak of the disease and saved, I don't know in BC how many lives it would have saved, but I, I, I would venture it would have saved, you know, tens of thousands of lives just from that simple thing. And that was greed. That wasn't, that wasn't science. That was greed that made that happen. But that was disappointing for me. And easy to fix, though. That was the good news. It was easy to fix. You only work here. Wash your hand and uh, go to one old home. Wash your hand seems to be the solution for all of it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that must be why they have it figured out in Japan. It was the cleanest, nicest place I'd been Tokyo. Like... They do more cleanest city I've been to for decades. They always everyone yeah. had a mask. Didn't he? he was like, "Hey, you got a mask? Yeah, yeah. One. You want one? <laughs> Are you going to wear it? Sure, I wear a mask all the time. They were already wearing masks and already washing their hands. Such a polite country. Yeah, I think also you know they have a, a what psychologists call recency bias. They really were hit hard by SARS H one N one and uh, yeah. it sort of uh, had them in a situation where they were much more prepared and took it more seriously than, than we did. You, are, you, are you thinking Japan or China? I think uh, most of the, most of Asia, Taiwan, yeah. Hong Kong, uh, certainly Japan, um, yeah. South Korea. Did China yeah. react the same way? It's, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. Yeah. Um, I think because it's such an autocratic regime, and they've moved much more toward authoritarianism. It's, um, I'm sure they were uh, trying to mitigate the news rather than the crisis itself, trying to avert a bad image, which yeah. means they were, you know, uh, not transparent. It wasn't a good flow of information. It's been estimated that they undercounted the COVID cases by 40 times, 38 
times I've read. So oh, very, wait, 38X? 38X. Yeah, 38X. Christ. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a big yeah. number. Now, yeah. now, oddly enough, doesn't that bring up the question, and I'll stay away from it if you don't want to, but oddly enough, that brings up the question of how what used to be publicly available data through the CDC about the outbreak, not just the new cases, but the hospitalization, is now no longer available to scientists and third parties for review in your home country? Uh, That's an interesting. That isn't that interesting. It's, how we were so uh, critical for doing that. And it's very disappointing. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's, I guess uh, interesting too, by definition. Well, that mm-hmm. the rise of autocracy around the world is is a fascinating feature we've been dealing with, um, sort of an echo of uh, past times. But we see it, yeah, and certainly here. There's a uh, an effort to control information that's ungainly, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, I, yeah. I, I from, from different perspectives, clearly, you know, these kinds of crises do get politicized, and it's unrealistic to expect they wouldn't. But wishful thinking to think that we would actually uh, do what's best. And, uh, you, you know, Barry, we had um, uh, Frank Prendergast on an episode with us, and oh. he. Um, He's a good friend of ours, and he uh, um, sat on the board of Eli Lilly and Mayo Clinic. Um, and he had suggested that the index that maybe mattered even more was uh, that doesn't exist is the morbidity index, because you have to figure out <laughs> you have to figure out how many issues you're going to have in a given area. Because he's like, you know, obviously this is not the last time we're going to see a pandemic, and no. um, him with a lot of people, and we'll ask you to take a prediction. Uh, predicted very differently than I actually we'll ask for your prediction here when do you think the next pandemic will come and I'll share what most of the people have said um, I think if we look historically it it's about a 10-year cycle isn't it so so let, let me let me change the words um, and you can stick with 10 years that's fine but when will a pandemic affect both Vancouver and Seattle again where we you know we have at least temporary lockdown oh, like even talking about a closed border is such a bizarre thing to me. Like I, I had, especially because you can still fly, <laughs> uh, but I can't drive. Um, boy, I, I, I'm, I think given the global nature of, of, and, and unless we change behavior at a large scale and the truth is you don't have to change at a large scale because one idiot can mess up a bunch of stuff. But uh, I think you're going to be left in 10 years before this happens again. Yeah. So, so I think our, I guess, as Chris, correct me, are somewhere between 10 and 15 years on average. Yeah. And that was one of the things uh, Frank was saying. We were both pretty surprised, I think. What, what would you guys, I don't think you were thinking 10 to 15 years. You, I think our, both of our predictions were way further out when we first did it. This is going to happen again. I mean, what, how are we like when, so SARS and avian flu, like I remember both of those. Yeah. I remember both of those. It didn't affect my me very much, mm-hmm. um, but they did affect me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I th- saw changes in behavior in, in Asia in particular, but none here. I guess I didn't expect any here, but I was surprised by the response time, given that we have so much more knowledge now. It, it, 
well, we just defunded a bunch of stuff right before in the United States, right? Like, mm. um, maybe one of the best things George W. did was make sure we had, you know, adequate responses for worldwide pandemic alerts. And yeah. Trump defunded them, what, like six months earlier? Mm-hmm. On executive order? Yeah. And I think Frank's <laughs> prediction of this happening again in the next decade was uh, predicated too upon a sort of continuation of the style of leadership we've been subjected to, I guess is the best way to put it. Well, that's going to be a horrible 10 years then. Oh my gosh, no question about that. Uh, yeah, but the whole world's doing it, so I don't know that we're going to change trajectory quickly, right? Like everybody keeps electing these, we'll just call them dodos, uh, right? Um, yeah. Worldwide, these autocratic dodos. Yeah. If the, if the commitment to a broad scale public health doesn't come up in the next couple of elections, like it should, right? Like how we can, and it's certainly going to play, uh, have an effect on, on uh, hopefully have an effect on the outcome of your election, at least get people thinking about it. And I think yeah. a thoughtful leader, I, I like thoughtful leaders. Um, they, they appeal to me. Yeah, well, we can look at examples uh, like uh, Germany, of course, most uh, foremost, which yeah. has done a wonderful job um, being open and transparent and mm-hmm. respectful of the intellectual leadership that's been provided them, not disdainful of it. So, What do you think about the our Nordic friends who just said we're going to tough this out and we're not going to shut down? I, and, and I think there's it's still interesting where this is going to fall, but there was integrity in the leadership, whether you agreed with it or not. Yeah, this is true. And I have some friends who are Swedish. Um, They're not traveling back to Sweden. (laughs) And they know that it's sort of persona non grata. Of course, U.S. citizens are uh, limited to where we can travel, but Sweden is one of the places we can visit if you dare. Um, But I, I don't know that decision just seemed a little premature because we're not even sure that we can develop uh, a lasting immunity or how long it lasts. We just have too many questions. And if we can't develop an immunity really to the common cold, which is a form of coronavirus, yeah. we couldn't be sure that we would be you know, able they, to have that here. It was just an assumption. I think they were going on. Yeah, yes, but they still social distanced. You know, they still did get better about a bunch of things, right? Like, yes, they, they kept the economy open, but, you know, what kids weren't going to school the same way, were they? No. So, like, you know, which is obviously one of the best ways to catch a cold, you know, or just to pass a, you know, an illness is just through a child. So, I, you know, may, maybe their approach wasn't bad. Time, time will tell us, right? Like, uh, I'm glad somebody tried it. Um, you know, a little, a little country tried it, not a big one. Well, we, we had this little country here in, in Seattle. I don't remember what the hell they were calling it. Everybody in the world asked me about jazz? it. Jazz? Uh, of the autonomous jazz? zone? Uh, the, Your autonomous zone. The autonomous zone, yeah. Um, so they were trying it there too, Barry. <laughs> I got some pictures, and uh, it seemed a little too uh, packed in. It seemed like a, you know, like a state fair or something. Mm-hmm. Everybody bumping into everybody. There, there was no room between people. Yeah, I mean, I don't um, think Sweden wasn't reckless about it. There was a thoughtful, right. measured experiment, and it was an experiment because at that time nobody knew anything about the, the, the really the disease or enough to like. We still don't know everything about disease. Correct. Um, but I, I, I can't say I agreed with it, but I admired the approach. 
I mean, like it was clear, it was well communicated, and it was broadly accepted by the population. And the compliance is great. So yeah, they haven't vacillated. That's true. They haven't. <laughs> We've had a lot of vacillation here. <laughs> We've gone back and forth and back again. And well, not even with vacillation. And you live in California right now, the mm. biggest state for all of COVID. Um, thank you, Neil. You know, it, thank you. Sorry. Come on no, down. Sure, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the tourist commission is going to have a word with you soon. But yeah, I've I've been to your house. It's paradise with all those great trees everywhere, Chris. <laughs> um, you've got plenty of room. Yeah. Um, no, no, no. But the. The, the the you know it's a weird a weird thing because while we were given orders, I kind of feel like they weren't listened to at all, like in lots of places. Well, so yeah, you know I don't know that our experiment was better. That's that's all I'm trying to say. Like we were told to do something, and yes, we went a certain way, but like, did it work? Look look at the state that. Um, well, I don't know that in. we received consistent messaging. I think to Barry's point in Sweden, as our previous example, they were consistent and they delivered that message firmly and consistently. And here again, we've gone back and forth. And Gavin wasn't? Gavin wasn't consistent? Gavin wasn't, but I think a lot of people in the state of California, especially the conservatives, were looking to the White House um, mm -hmm. and their fellow Republicans. You know, we've, we've grown up in this more partisan area. Uh, um, uh, time, you know, Neil. To your point, you said that we we're electing dodos, but we we are around the world. It seems leaning toward polemicists and demagogues, and I think yeah. of those demagogues as, you know, uh, politicians who are taking advantage of class warfare and uh, dividing people. Yeah. So that's really what we've seen. These divisions have have grown to be huge gaps, where uh, people who align with Democratic uh, Party policies um, hear a completely different message than those who are tuned into something else. It's really like we're speaking two different languages in some ways in this country. And Oh, in 2018, I asked every Uber driver, and I took a lot of Ubers that year. I traveled 170 days or something. Um, I asked every Uber driver I had, you know, where they stood on, you know, the president and the answers you got were so, the answers I got were so different in every place, right? Like you're saying, if it was a red state, it's clearly he's doing a great job. If it was a blue state, he's clearly failing. And and nobody said, you know, anything in between about any issue. Oh, come on. Right? That, that's like every consumer survey you ever, anyone ever did. You either get five stars or one star. It's almost like, you know, you only hear from the crazies and um, mm -hmm. the, the opinionated I want the thing that I and again. Yeah, but I had rocket scientists as my Uber driver occasionally. I'm not exaggerating. At I have too. I've. Man, I had some guy from Los Alamos National Laboratory saying, "I needed a break today. I don't talk to people. I just do research." Okay. You know, I see them, and I needed to. I had, you know, I had um, a retired stock uh, broker from New York who'd done really well in the '80s. I had this really, you know, and I had some really poor folks mm -hmm. as my Uber driver. I kind of had this massive swath, and the only consistency I saw was red state, Trump is great, blue state, he's bad. Can you tell me, he, you know, anything you like that he's done? No. You know, if it's a blue state. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. really, nothing? Like, you know, like something. You know, maybe, he, maybe you like hamburgers, too, and he ate some yesterday. Uh, nothing? There's nothing good about the guy. I, I can't believe that either. Um, it was just very polarizing. Well, Neil, I, I think the longer you observe human beings, uh, 
you recognize that effectively what they believe is what they want to believe or what they choose to believe. Yeah. Sometimes they vest that belief with um, (laughs) giving them life force and they'll even uh, kill someone who denies them their life supporting lies. Um, Just guess. Ask Jesus. Examples of that, yeah, yeah, and so. But now we're talking about like huge public health, public self safety issues, and mm-hmm. I, I think it's, um, you know, it, I think Sweden and Canada were much more law by obli- um, law abiding. abiding. Yeah, yeah. let's say obliging, abiding. And, uh, and, and we tend to be more polite, but uh, it is interesting in, you know, you know, for the good of many few must suffer. And all of a sudden I'm, you know, looking at these things and, you know, for the good of a few, many must suffer. Seems a really um, sad state of affairs. So Barry, I was in Stockholm once. This is over uh, almost 30 years ago, but I was out late at night and uh, walking along the streets and came to a corner where a crowd was waiting for the light to change and give them the walk signal. And uh, having just uh, spent time in New York City, I looked around and there was zero traffic at 1 a.m. in Stockholm on the street, and I just started to cross the street. And people screamed at me. So to your point about being law-abiding and rule-following, do you in Canada wait <laughs> to cross the street just until the signal gives you the authority to do so? Well, you no know, chance. I've jaywalked with Barry before, so whatever he tells you. <laughs> I've jaywalked him with him in Calgary for sure. Maybe not Vancouver. So maybe not to that extent, right? But Sweet. as a general rule, you you – as a general rule, we do see more compliance and, you know, you see the straight line of people waiting to get on the bus um, yeah. as opposed to the hoarding, the hordes charging. But it's, um, yeah, and I, I, um, I have to say I was somewhat shocked and I have seen, you know, pictures here. It's not just the U.S., Canada, where, you know, we did open up the, uh, you know, some relax some of the rules around public gatherings and, and in particular young people. And I wonder about, that like whose responsibility is that you know like a, I, I thought it was really smart and independent when i was 20 and now that i have a 20 year old i realize they don't know anything and they're totally dependent and i wonder about <laughs> i wonder about those crowds and you know i don't know i think if my kids asked my wife if they could go to that party the answer would be no and so i wonder where you know where does you know leadership whether it's from a parent, an advisor, or a politician, if you're not setting the right example, you can't expect uh, the uneducated masses or the crowd to uh, to come up with their own decision that's probably the right one. And I think it's interesting. Yeah, and I agree. We, I think, tend to just look for whatever labor-saving <laughs> and, and sometimes thinking is uh, laborious. Um, whatever that labor saving mechanism can be. And if it is just to follow along with the collective consciousness, and if the collective consciousness in a blue state is to follow along with the oval office, you do it, you know? Yeah. Now, More. you know, in, de- in defense of my jaywalking actions, I was either, I had to go to the bathroom, was late or hungry under normal circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> 
But in hindsight, I'm usually hungry uh, late or have to go to the bathroom. So maybe I should just uh, withdraw that statement. <laughs> but how? But how quickly do you um, your own justification for uh, bad behavior? Right. Again, I think it is you know sort of value driven. But you know how easy it is for people to justify. You know, I don't. You can't make me wear a mask. Uh, yes, like yeah. the, the lady and the lady who said God uh, will choose for her, right? God will choose. Thank you. Uh, but I guarantee God. you that that same lady looks both ways before she crosses the street. She's not just blindly walking right. into the <laughs> right. leaving that to God. But uh, yeah, money yeah. where God kicks in and God's not a uh, <laughs> a factor, huh? Yeah, yeah. I um, but I think another thing that uh, this crisis has certainly unmasked <laughs> um, has been yeah yeah has has uh really been that uh, some of these lies we've been living with are uh uh now revealed for what they are and we can't unsee that you know um mm -hmm. certainly we see it in some of the abuses of authority with the police policing in america i think we're seeing mm -hmm. it in the leadership or lack thereof uh, with regards to how we address COVID and what the appropriate measures to uh, prophylactic measures should be. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, even to things like our supply chains and uh, how we've been running with no inventory and <laughs> have no redundancy. Yeah. And we've got to make those things a little more shockproof. Um, it, that is, and, and really, I, I, I think it was similar um, situation where we, you know, we couldn't get any hand sanitizer. And the truth was we just get any plastic bottles because they were coming out of China. Um, and I think it's really interesting to think about these large economies relying on, um, you know, the lowest cost, minimally acceptable quality product. And it's profit driving it. That was totally an entirely profit driven thing. Um, because uh, we make Corona beer, uh, not far from where I live. They don't ship Corona beer from Mexico up to Canada. We figured out how to make it here and it tastes almost the same and it's the same bottles but um, I think that's going to change too I think that's going to be an interesting um, correction in this um, or maybe it's not a correction maybe it's tied to the sort of the nationalistic furor that was permeating your uh, leadership anyways but mm. at least maybe this one will work right I think it's probably mm. a good idea to have hand sanitizer locally you know, face some yeah. face mask, some hand sanitizer. Um, I don't know what else. Fruits, vegetables. I guess that doesn't matter. A PPE, the protective equipment. Uh, some of the pharmaceuticals that were being manufactured in China that we couldn't get. Yeah. Toilet paper. <laughs> I, still, I still don't get that one. I yeah. never did. I don't get it. I'm just going to... My <laughs> wife teased me that I should have been a futures trader because I'd accidentally ordered a year extra worth of toilet paper the previous year. I put it on like double subscription or something at you, Amazon. You ordered a year's worth? Neil? I have more than a year's worth of toilet paper that I ordered beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> I had a subscription on Amazon and I, you know, I, I, I thought I switched it off once and my mom called, but I was on the computer, didn't pay much attention and I switched the subscription to their house. Um... 
<laughs> just kind of get lost in it. And then my mom was like, "What do you think's going on over here that you kept sending, keep sending toilet paper?" She said, "Mom, I'm I'm starting a new arbitrage." <laughs> no, she, we didn't know. Now, now she's laughing about it, right? Um, that they're all stocked up, um, and and so are we. Yeah, there's no there's but there's no secondary market for TP. You know, there's no. <laughs> there, there certainly was. There certainly was for a while. I, I disagree. Um, <laughs> Open rolls or you, you know, I, I I think after Zolo, yeah, maybe open roll should be your next uh, your next site, <laughs> your next web property. Um, you know, Barry, I'm hoping you'll join us to talk a little bit about we're, we we kind of typically go through the market and um, have a good conversation about that, and we talk a little bit about startups. Do you mind hanging out with us for another half an hour? Yeah, you have the time. Um, <laughs> Chris. Talk to us about the markets this week and some of what you observed. Oh. And Barry, just for context, that's an interesting sound that came out of you, Chris. Just for context, we, you know, I, I always uh, ask Chris, you know, what he'd tell the 120 families that, you know, uh, park their money at his RIA. And, um, you know, it's a lot of it's very general, but it's kind of interesting to hear a guy who, who, some weeks feels like uh, he's really in the trenches, um, even though he lives in Pasadena. Okay, well, I'm going to take out a pen and take notes for what Chris has to say. <laughs> <laughs> and you can listen again to the podcast. Let's hope it ages well. We'll see. But, uh, you know, it is an interesting week because um, about midweek is when things seem to have turned. When we had that uh, latest unemployment report here in the U.S. showing that the the job losses are still climbing, of course. Um, is this so the seventy thousand report? Yeah, this is uh, yeah giving the lie to the idea that we're somehow climbing out of this coronavirus crisis, um, as the numbers of those losing jobs are still growing, um, and that seemed to create a bit of a turn because you know we had uh, record highs in the Nasdaq. And the Nasdaq's become quite top-heavy, even more than the S&P 500 index. So we've seen, you know, companies like your favorite, Microsoft, Neil, a great yeah. company. But Microsoft, Apple, and Amazon combined. 16%. Yeah. Well, they're, uh, the top five companies are 45% or so of the Nasdaq index. The, the bottom companies have to make do with the pennies that are left over and split the the difference, but the those three companies—Amazon, Apple, Microsoft—have a combined market capitalization over five trillion dollars, and that's larger than the economy of Germany, which uh, just doesn't make economic sense. Um, it just shows uh, again that we are posed to believe what we choose to believe. Uh, it reminds me of 1989 when they said that the land under the Imperial Palace in Tokyo is worth more than all of California. And that, of course, today seems ridiculous, but uh, there were auditors who were signing off on those valuations. So it wasn't as if they were just people with tinfoil hats believing those outrageous numbers. Um, and so today we have the you know this uh, market which is supporting these extraordinary valuations. Um, and it seems that uh, it might have been uh, somewhat challenged this week because starting Thursday and then today again, some of the large tech companies, which have been impregnable, started to roll over. 
I don't know if this is a sustainable or, or enduring trend, but we'll have to see because it is the first time in a while we've seen these sort of back-to-back losses present themselves, at least in the darling area of technology. Um, but the, the markets have uh, seemingly still remained overall disconnected from the underlying economic reality. So we still haven't really seen a wholesale revision yet. Um, but these numbers just don't quite make sense in the face of one of the worst economic outcomes we've ever experienced. Um, you can really see it. Uh, G- GDP numbers are expected to collapse by 38% in just the second quarter alone on an annualized basis. That uh, is worse than what we saw in the Great Depression. Uh, 25% peak to trough drop in GDP, and it took you know three and a half years to get there in the bottom of 1932 from 29. And a war so, to get out of Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 16 years and a war in between. Um, to pull ourselves out of that. And I often think about this because, you know, we've been living with so many different anomalies, things we've never seen before. I mean, negative interest rates first uh, showed their hideous faces in the 2014-15 period and the number of, yeah, German bonds and uh, Swiss bonds and uh, even some short-term bonds from places like Spain and Italy um, achieved a negative interest rate. And it, it, it's always been a conundrum for me. I think about this a lot and meditate on it. it um, I always think, uh, you know, people say don't fight the Fed, the central banks, uh, you know, have firepower. But I always think of them as really pro-cyclical. And they can exaggerate um, the depth or the heights of an existing cycle um, but they're really not in charge. They're not in control. It might seem like they have this illusion of control. Um, but this is something I always think about. And so what trend are the, the central banks really exacerbating? Um, and I think it is that uh, sort of, it seems with negative interest rates, it's like a deflationary trend. You know, um, Historically, sovereign debt of the best countries uh, the U.S., modern day Germany today, the um, the Britain a <laughs> uh, hundred years ago, even today, uh, British guilds and uh, consuls still considered uh, you know generally risk free assets. But those those types of in, those types of bonds, those investment instruments, have yielded historically about two percent over the rate of inflation. So if we're seeing negative interest rates. And this is consistent, and it's been uh, a pretty persistent condition. Are we really seeing economic uh, growth collapsing? In other words, are we seeing an economic contraction that's persisted for a few years, and we've just been masking over it with money printing, with um, non-GAAP accounting (laughs) to show profits where they don't exist, with whisper numbers, with all of the tools we have, with adjusted EBITDA, and all of those things. So we're pretending to grow. Um, when, in fact, the economic pie has been shrinking. Of course, there are pockets where things are growing. But this is an open question, and I guess we're going to find out. <laughs> but uh, the the real economy has certainly fallen off a cliff here, and the the stock market has yet to catch down to that. And that's where we're really defensive 
and keeping our guard up, especially now. And we'll see if this uh, sobering trend continues in the market or if we um, blithely go on to reach new highs. Both are possible. Congress is already authoring a new stimulus bill. Yeah, I, based on Congress alone, I wonder if we're not just going to go higher, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've never lived through a situation like this where um, usually these kinds of inflationary pressures, um, the, the money printing, the liquidity, are isolated. You know, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, <laughs> um, Argentina, uh, they're, doing, they're going it alone. The Reichsbank inflation in the 20s, you know, they're, <laughs> they're sort of uh, mavericks just trying to stave off financial collapse. But now the whole world has been joining hands, you know, the the PBOC in China, the um, the exchequer in in uh, and the you know in Britain, the the U.S. Treasury along with the Fed, uh, and this is also really really an interesting time because um, it may be that the Congress has finally found a way to do an end run around the Federal Reserve, almost obsoleting them by sending checks directly to households through PPP loans, uh, those paycheck protection loans and small business loans that Congress is authorizing. So they're, they're basically transmitting this new money right into the real economy, right into consumers' hands, rather than through the financial system in the plumbing where it's been hung up and clogged up uh, with the past stimulus uh, being introduced through the banking system. So this is a sort it's of interest. It's not enough, though. It's not enough, though. I agree with you. It's good. It's a good start. But, you know, it's like using a Q-tip to unclog your toilet. It's not going to last for very long. Well, in the, in the past, you know, the stimulus has come through bank reserves. And the theory was that banks would then use these reserves, the sort of raw material of credit, to fashion into loans. And then that pushes the money out into the real economy, out of the banking system. I give you a new mortgage. I give you a new home equity line. I, you know, commercial and no, industrial. No, and it worked. I'm just saying that the new they haven't completely figured out the new model well, right? Well, I'm saying it. it you know, it worked a little bit, but not not really great. Those um, excess reserves grew in the banking system. That money was in a, or, or um, those reserves, that raw material of credit, stayed in a big stagnant pool and grew to over four trillion dollars. Um, and so it wasn't the most effective method to get new loans out into the real economy. And now it seems they've taken a different approach. Um, while the Fed has dusted off a lot of those old plans and is using some of the same mechanisms, Congress has gotten involved in the Treasury to send money directly to households now. And I think that that will certainly spark inflation, um, not immediately. But uh, because right now we're throwing money into an economy that's certainly moribund and is still shrinking in some ways. Um, but ultimately, when things stabilize, um, we, we'll probably see a different uh, inflationary result. And by that, when I talk about inflation, I want to be clear. We've had asset inflation. The asset prices are certainly inflated. But I'm talking about consumer prices now. And that's what scares central banks and politicians the most. Because it drives home the falling value of money. The, the minute my Campbell soup goes up? Yeah. And, you know, we've been living through a little bit of that. The, the, mostly companies are scared to raise prices. So they've been cheating us on the, on the um, volume, <laughs> cutting back the volume, which uh, 
you know, Neil, if you buy a bag of Lay's potato chips today, there's a lot more air in that bag. <laughs> a lot. You look at a, my, a my wife pot. really enjoys potato chips, and I have learned that there's a lot yeah. less than just five years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, you know, I'm curious. I know it's not exactly analogous, but I have this uh, comparison you gave to me in your head or in my head that uh, um, was, I think it was the the United Kingdom who had the largest debt uh, load that ever paid it back, like three and a half X GDP or four X GDP mm-hmm. during the Napoleonic Wars. Is that right? Yeah. So the government debt alone was about 250% of GDP by some estimates. And the, the total debt in the economy was about four X GDP. And they uh, did not default, though uh, they did reduce the value of their currency. They did inflate some of that debt away, which some say is not technically a default, but still a form of cheating. <laughs> but they're not the first, and they won't be the last to do that. But they did you know, not. So as we comp- they didn't have a hard default. As we, it seems like we're on a race to beat them, right? Like we, we better beat them in modern day history, right? Just like we do everything else. Well, I think it's um, Im- it, it is important to know that we're um, certainly in the most indebted, uh, not just country but worldwide. We've got we're carrying the largest debt we've ever carried, and certainly relative to global GDP and other measures. Um, but in, even here in the U.S., if you look at each successive recovery from the last crisis, the economic growth is smaller and smaller. The rebounds are smaller and smaller. We're basically snuffing out the resiliency and the dynamism in our economy with this overburdening debt. Um, and you know, um, Hyman Minsky, um, who gave us the idea of the Ponzi economy, uh, in the 1930s, in his sort of post-mortem of the Roaring Twenties and the debt levels that that grew then, suggested that there are these phases that an economy grows through, where initially the debt is very productive and it's used to create new assets. Um, it's invested in new factory plant and equipment, apartment buildings, etc. Things that give you a return on investment. Um, gradually, though. Debt is used for non-productive means, for consumption. Um, and you have to divert uh, money from productive uses to pay that debt back off. Eventually, the non-productive debt becomes disproportionate, and it just saps the life and economic vitality out of the productive part of the economy. And eventually, you get to a point where you're only taking on new debt to replace the old debt, to create an optical illusion that these debts aren't defaulted. <laughs> that we're able to roll it forward and borrow enough to make an interest payment as well. Um, eventually, of course, that does uh, suffocate the economy. And there has to be some form of relief, a debt jubilee or a write-off of that uh, debt that can't be repaid. But we haven't hit the wall yet. We're still revolving this debt, rolling it over and increasing it. Um, I can't say I have any visibility on when that will be, but... COVID has uh, certainly put a, a wrench in our spokes, and we'll have to see if that's enough to throw us out of the saddle. What do you think of the recent bankruptcies from a lot of your legacy, uh, like the retail companies for sure? Um, Sears, JCPenney, or are you talking about other things? Well, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, just about every one of them. Uh, yeah. I think it's interesting, at least as an observer, to see people going into Chapter 11. 
which is really just shaking. Neiman Marcus. Neiman yeah. Marcus, right? It's like shake it up, write down some debt. Someone gets stuck with it. You know, someone doesn't get paid, someone gets paid. And, and there's no real, there's no real material change in, in the business and their prospects other than less debt to carry. But where does that debt go? The debt doesn't disappear. It had to get paid by somebody or it'll get paid by future. Yeah. Or you'll have some of the um, bottom fishers to pick up that uh, defaulted on debt and try to make some pennies back on the dollar for it. Um, But the, yeah, I, I think about this a lot too, Barry. I think you know, of course, a lot of CEOs and C-suite executives are going to kitchen sink this and put the COVID asterisk yeah. next to their results and say, oops, we can, uh, all of the bad mergers and acquisitions and decisions, bad decisions we made and all the debt we took on to buy these companies. The Brooks that Brooks Brothers CEO. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to just throw it, on, yeah. throw it all under the COVID, uh, under the, uh, you know, and, and just write off as much as we can. I think certainly there are going to be opportunists like that. Um, but I do think, you know, while it's probably an overused expression that COVID has dragged us 10 years into the future in retail, there's probably uh, some kernel of truth to it. <laughs> some of those sound bites always make me uh, concerned as a natural contrarian. I have a friend who always says, if it sounds like a TED Talk topic, I'm against it. <laughs> Just too, too uh, compact and neat sometimes to really be believable or, or useful but yeah, um, it's a very easy out right now um, as long as people use it for good and not to hide uh, bad calls i had a cfo once he said if you're going to barf on yourself barf once just get it all right, right. <laughs> i like that phrase that's a great one i'll uh, give you the attribution have a bad quarter clear the decks because you know, start fresh. Right, right, right. And uh, I think certainly this crisis is giving many of those an opportunity to do it. Um, but I also do think that some like Neiman Marcus, of course, JCPenney again, uh, many of these bankruptcies are um, overdue <laughs> and should have probably happened a long time. Neil, you mentioned wow. Sears. They're still hanging in there. I don't know why. There's a retailer from uh, <laughs> Lampard's a genius, right? Yeah, he's, he's the one. In- <laughs> yeah, he's either the smartest guy in the room or the dumbest guy in the room. One of the two. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe he sees another little hidden kernel in that Sears bucket he can sell. I mean, he's pretty much divested of everything that had value, from Craftsman tools to KitchenAid appliances mm-hmm. to the real estate portfolio. So I don't know what's left of that carcass to divide up, but maybe there's something. I don't know. Um, but yeah, they, mm-hmm. they've they so far refused to fall in <laughs> and uh, give up the ghost. But uh, certainly many, many others have. Uh, we're definitely experiencing uh, record bankruptcies here. Um, so, and that's a, a rolling process, you know, it tends to come like shockwaves. So I... I do wonder about the banking system. And then we start to see very large frauds like Wirecard. You know, each time um, the cycle changes is when the frauds are revealed. And that sometimes is enough to change the market psychology. Um, Bernie Madoff and others that happened in the prior cycle uh, and Enron in the dot-com era 
um, were enough to change people's attitudes about stock prices and the markets sold off with the revelation of those very large frauds. Maybe Wirecard's not big enough. Maybe we need a Tesla or something else to finally be <laughs> Alibaba. Dude, that, you know, I have no my Tesla's my, not going to work. Tesla's too, too, too much of a darling. How about Alibaba? There's a company that's largely fraudulent. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with you. We tried, we tried to go through the Friends Day uh, sales, right? And we, we just couldn't come up with the math. Yeah, try going through their annual report. See if that makes sense. <laughs> try that if you really want a mental challenge. Isn't it domesticated in the Caribbean to not own a piece of anything but a brand or something too? Yeah, you yeah, you, you've got shares in the Cayman Islands LLC, okay? Not in... Uh, <laughs> I remember... Reading something interesting, uh, saying that the market cap of a company with uh, the uh, risk-adjusted, time-adjusted, sum total of all future value in the company, right? And um, and it's was an interesting. You could actually draw it out as a curve, and you could see something that had a, a tall blip or a long tail, and they could still have the same surface area depending on what they would. But it, it reflected people's um, long-term belief in the company and the value that they would survive. And, and I think about some of the changes you've seen in the share prices, some of the big tech companies you talked about and how, you know, like Amazon, you know, they're making, they're like, they're shipping a lot of stuff. Let's mm -hmm. just say they're uh, Apple, not so much. Right. right. And, and right. How, how, do you, how do you relate share price and market cap to these totally opposite um, trends. Uh, the, I was reading an article that was kind of cool about acquisitions in the AI space by Google and Apple and Amazon, and um, and they ranked the AI between like Siri and and Alexa, and like as a as a metric of of the value of their AI. And so Apple's done all these acquisitions, and Siri's kind of a bit of piece of junk, right? Nobody uses it other than on their phones. Mm -hmm. um, and so where's Apple's value coming from if, if, if consumer demand really gets whacked? It's like, why does gas go up really quick and down really slow? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, there's mm -hmm. these weird market reactions that aren't supported by anything. <laughs> well, <Right>. we've we're <laughs> in the era of algorithmic trading so the you know the 86 percent or so of daily trading is done by computer and um, some of that computer trading is very simple it's just buying the index so there's yeah. some extrapolation there because the index is cap weighted and once you develop a, or you're large enough in size the big get bigger because the they're bigger. drawing more capital from that so that's also something, though, that can reverse on a dime, or not quite as quickly, turning a battleship maybe, but when attitudes change and people say that the index is no longer the the best investment destination for their dollar, that thing can unwind just as rapidly. Um, but yeah, there's a point at which this does become disconnected in a very real way, too. I wonder with all of the you know, funds, um, like uh, I read... Um, Vanguard's taking in $2 billion a day. <laughs> and I remember uh, reading once in 1998 that uh, Jack Bogle had a meeting with his team at Vanguard. And he said, you know, we've 
crossed a billion dollars in AUM and we can get too big for our britches. So let's just focus on keeping costs low. And he had this, and now it's two billion a day or something that is flowing in. But I was going to say, I just wonder who is going to vote those shares, right? What happens in the real world when companies have to elect a board of directors or make certain decisions and shareholders are just stuck in an index fund? Does Vanguard vote those shares? Which um, I say no. Does that give corporations free reign to sort of run the show the way they see fit? Be dumb. Yeah. Be dumb. Be the be, drunken sailor. Or, yeah. 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 Uh, or um, behave inhumanely. <laughs> or, you know. Uh, I mean, I, that's what we see with most of humanity. So I don't know why this would be different. Right. 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 But anyway, these are questions yet to really be fleshed out and answered. But uh, I do think sometimes, Neil, it's what we've talked about in the past, you know, um, Bapu, the wonderful Gandhi, was uh, really uh, uh, um, against scale because he thought scale led to uh, inhumanities. You know, uh, maybe oversimplifying, but uh, he wanted. No, but yeah, just, just, just yeah, put that in perspective. Don't you like going to the very small European city where everything's small and local, like as an idea of a? Vacation? Well, and also, uh, I think his his idea was to preserve the craftsmanship that had. Uh, you know, been a hallmark of Indian goods. And, and, uh, anyway, and I think he wanted to preserve that craftsmanship as well as the pride in making something and creating, um, that gets lost at scale as well. So just kind of a spiritual, uh, uh, <laughs> preservation from our, <laughs> from the things that can get lost when we scale. But there's a real question. Can you scale humanely? Well it's possible. I don't know that I've seen it well. Yeah, I think that's a. Those things don't go to. Those things don't necessarily go together always, as right? As long as I don't have to wear a mask if I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That, that could be the quote of the podcast right there. Yeah. Hey, if you liked our episode today, please go ahead and visit your local podcast host and give us a five star rating. We really would appreciate it. We'd love to bring you more guests. And uh, if you have any requests or suggestions, also feel free to leave that in the comments where you rate us. And we will talk to you soon. Until then, be well and be safe. All opinions expressed by Neil Modi, Chris Idell, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Zoic Capital or Heidel Beal and Associates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions.